everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Neil Martin, an Irish musical powerhouse. He's a musician and a composer whose career encompasses dance, opera, theater, film, radio, TV, concerts, and recordings. A few of his recent works include an opera, a violin concerto, theater scores, and chamber music. Neil is a cellist and an Illin piper. He's collaborated with artists such as Bryn Terfell, Sam Shepard, Stephen Ray, and Josh Groban. He scored music for shows on Broadway, the West End, and in Europe. And he's performed, among other places, at Carnegie Hall in New York City. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, Neil and I are going to do what I call a song fest. I've asked him to pick out a handful of his best works. We're going to listen to a bit of them, and we're going to talk about them. You'll get the backstories, and nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know that in every episode, I feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. In this instance... I've chosen the song New York City Groove that I did for the album Made in New York by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this? Well, Neil's played at Carnegie Hall. And what song could be more appropriate for Carnegie Hall than New York City Groove? So Neil Martin, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you very much, Robert. It's, it's great to talk to you. Now, Neil, you've told me that you're from Belfast, which is in Northern Ireland. Tell us what it was like growing up in Belfast and becoming a musician. Well, I was born in 1962, um, family here in North Belfast. My mother was from Derry City, but moved to Belfast in the 50s, met my father, who was born in Belfast. And... We grew up in a very musical household. Neither of my parents really played music, Robert, but they were both deeply passionate about music. And my father's record collection was utterly extraordinary. My parents' record collection, I should say. Bach, Beethoven, uh, Ray Cooter, The Beatles, film soundtracks, original Louis Armstrong and the Hot Five handwritten Parlophone discs. I mean, it covered the full gamut from traditional music through to jazz. It was a really very broad musical base. And my first memory of life, Robert, is of a Sunday morning. I don't know what age I was, I guess, maybe three or something. And waking to the sound of the Kyrie Eilei song from Bach's B minor mass and the smell of a cooked breakfast. Because my mother made a cooked breakfast every Sunday morning. And my father lifted the old record player out into the hall 
and would put the Bach B minor mass on and the volume would be up at 11, going round the house. So that's my first memory of, of life, is a kind of a musical environment. Was it a Victrola that he played the records on? It wasn't a stereo system, was it? No, it wasn't a stereo. It was a box with a, a the lid that came up on an arm that went down. No, there was no word like stereo back then. Not in our house, anyway. But still, I mean, what an extraordinary experience to have all of that variety of music in your house. What was it that led your parents to have such a broad understanding and, and liking for music? Well, there were fiddle players back on my mother's side of the family. Her mother played the fiddle a little, her father before her again, and the father before that again. So there was an awareness of music, certainly. My mother had a brother uh, who was a well-known Irish traditional musician, so that was there in the house. What sparked it in my father's side of the family, I'm not sure. He just seemed to ever be curious about music and had very, very broad tastes and, and a great passion for music that made the soul feel better. I think really that's what it was. Fantastic. All right. So did they encourage you to go into music or was that something that was from you? No, they were great encouragers. My parents bought a piano, I guess, when I was about six or something. I remember the piano being delivered this day. And my parents got us uh, piano lessons. And then the following year, I did a music aptitude test for the through the primary school I attended. And I took up cello. And then shortly after that, because of the interest in traditional music that there was in the house and with my mother's brother, I took up tin whistle. And then a few years after that, um, illin pipes, because I got caught by the the bug, the the unmistakable sound of Ellen Pipes. So they were great encouragers, and I, I, I intended the city of Belfast School of Music here. You have to remember, Robert, in those days in the 70s, bombs and bullets were going off all over the place in, 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 in Belfast. And the School of Music was an absolute haven to so many people back then. There were kids from the north, south, east and west of this city from all kind of social and religious backgrounds. And I promise you this, in all my years of the School of Music, I never once heard any mention of religious bigotry or any sense of discrimination from any of my colleagues or anybody else at the School of Music. Isn't that the great power of music, that it, it, it transcends everything else? It goes to places where nothing else can. Absolutely. But as you said, you were taking lessons and learning during, I guess, the troubles, right? And yet none of that affected you. They stayed away from the music school. Was that just luck or was it intentional? I think anybody who was attending the School of Music um, would have been passionate by and large about music. Anybody that was passionate about political or, or, or other matters, I suspect, wouldn't have devoted the time to the School of Music. So... My, my my feeling was that those of us who were there and lucky enough to be there just celebrated music. And, and of course, when you're young and in your teen years, 
those friendships develop. They're very, very important friendships you develop with people. And although I don't see many of the people I was at the School of Music with back in the in the 70s, I know if I were to meet them tomorrow, we would pick up as if it was last week. We were last in rehearsal. Very strong, steadfast friendships were developed. And again, right across the, the, the religious divide, if you like, as, as they used to call it here. So we grew up through music, which is very powerful. All right. So this is the 1970s. Did you get into classical music first? Did you get into traditional music? Were you a Beatles fan? Tell us which direction you went in. Well, it started with classical music on the piano and then the cello. But there was always such a broad variety of music played in the house. I was very aware of traditional music. So I, I guess I was about nine and just through hearing so much music, I thought, God, it, it would be good to go down that kind of road and see what this different music was about. And my parents bought me tin whistles and cassette tapes and books and things to learn music from. So it, it really was that the classical start, then traditional. And then, Robert, in my mid-teenage years, those two things began to cross-fertilize because I never felt them as awkward bedfellows. I, I, I always thought they complemented each other in different ways. So in my mid-teenage years, I started to play traditional music, especially song airs on the cello. Because I was a very fluent reader of music, I was able to play avant-garde classical music on illin pipes because I could sight read. And we have to remember that back then, certainly, there were not that many traditional musicians who could read music because it's an oral tradition. It's passed on generation to generation. People have great mental faculty in traditional music. They can hold hundreds and sometimes thousands of tunes in their head, but they don't read. So my, my kind of path was interesting because I could happily traverse from one to the other. And, and I, never, I, I never felt any awkwardness about that. What I find so interesting, with so many kids, certainly in the United States, I'm sure around the world, that have to be pushed into music or whatever the arts are. They don't want to practice. They don't want to rehearse. It's always difficult to get them into the swing of things, so to speak. But you seem to have a self-starter aspect to this whole thing. I mean, your parents were obviously fans of music, but they had never been professional musicians. And you had to be somebody that would start and push yourself. Am I right? Well, yeah, I, I always felt very passionate about it. I always loved music. I always found, even before you could explain the extra dimensions of music, I was always kind of in awe of so much of it. And I didn't know what that awe was, but I knew that it caught part of me and part of my feeling, part of my soul, I suppose uh, we can say. And, you know, I began writing music early because I... I I think I was just caught by the thing. I remember watching a TV program, maybe when I was about 11 or something. And, and I remember on the soundtrack, there was a flute and a cello playing a certain bit of music. And I wondered, why is that music? Why is that kind of sad music coming out when what's going on in the background or you know what's happening in the television program? And the association of the mood of music along with picture, fascinated me from an early age. And I, I think I began writing music around that stage when I was 10 or 11, because I just liked the way the notes worked and the different kind of emotions that 
different notes sometimes when played together or sometimes played separately in, in a melodic way. I, I, I just like, I, I enjoyed what they did for me. Yeah, I understand completely. I have a place in Massachusetts that I go to in the United States, and there's a place there called Tanglewood. And John Williams is a composer in residence there. He's got to be at least 90 years old at this point. But so much of what you just said is applicable to him. You know, the number of TV shows, movies, and other things that he has created the scenes for. I mean, it is a remarkable idea and being able to do this, to take a look at something, an action that's happening on the screen and to create music that goes along with it, that enhances the feeling of what's happening on the screen. Wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. If we were to take music out of movies, for example, or you know, even out of documentaries, never mind movies, the emotional impact would be so reduced. Yes. The subliminal message of music, and it, it, it's not an easy thing to get right, but the subliminal message of music in what we view on screens has an extraordinary place in it all. You know, it's it's beyond description. I I often think, like so many of us do, when we get up a bit in life, I wish I had been around to some degree when the silent movies were on to have gone to have heard an orchestra in the big movie theaters, an orchestra playing live with what you were watching on the black and white screen. Dear God, that must have been utter magic. You know, all of that and whatever way those scores worked, they worked for the audience and for the world at that time. So that associate, I know, of course, of Tanglewood and, 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 uh, you know, I can think of nothing, nothing more fantastic than somebody like John Williams. No human more fantastic. When you consider the output, what he has done, his sensitivity to screen, his creativity, all of those other elements that come into play, looking at a script, looking at rushes, reading a script, getting ideas, not repeating yourself, trying to come up with something new all the time. He's an extraordinary man. Yeah. Let me ask you this. When you're scoring a movie or any kind of a production, is this your concept that predominates or do you have to run everything past the director? How does that work? Well, of course you have to collaborate with the director, get an idea. I've just finished scoring a play, for example. I work with the director and I give her a few ideas. First of all, we talk and we find a common language and I try and interpret what the director wants. They won't have the musical uh, patois, but they will have emotions that they want to this particular scene or that scene to impart. So I enjoy talking with the director, finding a common language, making a few suggestions, making a few demos. And then once it emotionally locks into the place where the director is happy with it, it kind of becomes your own domain. You just follow your gut instinct and you write music as you feel best suits that particular production. You're absolutely correct, though, that if you watch a scene with music and then watch it without the music, it's completely different. Mm -hmm. The emotion that comes out from the music when it's done correctly and when it's done well is extraordinary. Yeah. And, and you have to be very careful not to over-egg the pudding. 
don't don't <laughs> don't put too much emotion in. Don't kill people all together with the emotion. You know, it's the 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 temperature that you put the gas at is very important. Well, I'm sure you're right that, that like anything else in life, you got to know when to put something in, when not to, when to predominate within the score or just lay back and let it go underneath. These are talents that, of course, only people like yourself have. We as an audience will listen, and so much of it is subliminal. Of Okay, we're not focused on the music. We're not focused on the score in most instances, but the difference of what is happening on the screen or in the play or in the movie is enhanced tremendously by what you're doing in your score. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. And the silences between notes are every bit as important as the notes themselves. There's nothing wrong with a few bars rest or scaling something down. That's what I think. Sounds good. Hi, everybody. I'm Robert Miller, your host. As you know by now, I'm a professional musician in addition to hosting this Follow Your Dream podcast. In fact, I just released my 13th album, all since I followed my dream after I turned 60. The album is called It's Alive, and it's a live recording by my band, Project Grand Slam, featuring 13 of our greatest hits, recorded at festivals in Pennsylvania and Serbia. The reviewers have called it a masterpiece and an instant classic. I introduced this album through a podcast episode, which has now been downloaded by thousands of listeners from over 120 countries, which shows the power and worldwide reach of this podcast. When I began the podcast, I had no idea where it would go. But here we are, just over two years later, and the podcast is ranked in the top 1% with listeners in 200 countries. It's been a joyride for me, my guests, and for my thousands of listeners. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And you must visit our website at followyourdreampodcast.com to check out all of our episodes, our famous guests, and much more. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. All right, let's go to the second part of this episode. I've asked you to pick out a handful of songs, and I'm going to let you kind of describe those songs. Let's start with, is it Naknishi? Yeah, no, you, you have it spot on, Naknishi. And I've no time, no time for the season, no reason to see. What glad tidings there may be Oh, but I curse Curse the very thought That took you away from me Ah, 
That's an English word, but it comes from the Irish that sounds basically the same, crook or canuckneshi, that means the hill of the fairies. And this track started out originally as an instrumental. I wrote a, a suite for the West Ocean String Quartet, with whom I've been collaborating for almost a quarter of a century. And the, the theme, if you like, I wrote a suite about William Butler Yeats, three movement suite. And the middle movement was about the love unrequited love between William Butler Yeats and Maud Gone. And Brendan Graham, whom you know well, the songwriter extraordinaire, Brendan came to a concert one night of the quartets and he, he heard this played and he said to me, please, could I write some words? Could we, could we see if I could write some words and we could collaborate on this? And I said, Brendan, what an honour. So he wrote these beautiful words and, and we demoed the song, the version you have is with a beautiful singer from County Derry called Mary Dillon, one of the most beautiful voices I've ever heard in my life. So Mary recorded that and a few other people have recorded it since. Uh, Anthony Cairns from the Irish Tenors has recorded it and Kathy Jordan indeed has recorded it and it's about to come out on an album of Brendan Graham songs sung by Kathy Jordan. Yes, and in fact, she was on the podcast recently, and I think these were songs that started out as demos and have now become a full album. Yep, there you go. You just don't know the journey of a piece of music when you write it. There you go. You're, you're absolutely right. Okay, let's go to the second one, An Indigo Sky. Indigo Sky is an album, uh, the fourth album of the West Ocean String Quartet, a glorious union that um, I've been involved in since 1999, nearly a quarter of a century, dear God, we're together now. And that's the album title, An Indigo Sky, after a suite called An Indigo Sky that I wrote in memory of a, a young fella um, who unfortunately died very young in life. He was from a townland on the uh, Clare Galway border called Knock Meal. And the humours of Knock Meal, the jig, is the closing movement of that suite. And it's a kind of, it's a celebration of life. Yes, the young fellow went and he was a great musician uh, and so on. But ultimately, it's a celebration of life and it's a kind of happy jig. Nice. Let me ask this. When you compose, and you, you've mentioned you compose in different styles and you'll do the violin, then the cello, etc., do you compose on the piano or is there another instrument in which you compose? I compose at the piano, exactly where I'm seated now. I have a very nice Beckstein seven-foot mahogany grand piano. I'm very lucky. And I sit in the bay window where the piano is of the music room at home. And I do the fundamentals at piano. You know, I might find the pick out a melody at piano or, or get harmonic ideas at the piano. And then I would use pencil and manuscript to write down basic stuff, first of all, sketches, ideas. But then I actually input all that into Sibelius software. 
And I use that as a software program and I orchestrate within the computer so that when you're finished all of the orchestration, there's no more having to write everything out by hand. You press a button, the score is delivered. Isn't that fantastic? Listen, you know that I'm a professional musician, but we come at music from two different universes, if you will, within music, because I am in a jazz, rock, pop kind of area of music. And when I compose, I try to compose in on different instruments. I don't play piano per se, but I, I can, you know, knock out the chords that I, I'm interested in. I'll also compose sometimes on the bass, which was my primary instrument. I'll compose on the guitar. Different ideas come from different instruments when I'm composing. And then for me, I have to preserve what I'm coming up with because I can't remember it for five minutes later. So I have a particular program on my phone that I use and I start it and I'll play it in there. And I come back to it about a week later and see if it's any good. And that's how I remember what I'm doing. I would think that particularly for composers like yourself, before you had all this software, you're composing at the piano, you're coming up with an idea. Maybe you're writing it down at that moment, but being able to bring it back and remember exactly what it was that you came up with, that, would, that must have been difficult, particularly for the older composers that we love at this point. I mean, how did Beethoven do this? Well, you know, I often think about this, Robert. I have no idea how those guys did it. You know, um, Mozart, dead in his mid-30s, 41 symphonies, like upwards of 30 piano concertos, opera, all of the chamber works. You know, extraordinary level of output. I have no idea. I promise I have no idea how they managed it. The great thing with Sibelius and software, other software programs, when you hit play, you can get assimilated orchestral sounds coming back out. You, you get some idea of what you've created. But those guys, the discipline they had, extraordinary. Think of Johann Sebastian Bach, yeah. what that man wrote over all of those years. And a lot of stuff these guys wrote, they never actually heard in full performance. That terrific piece we talked about at the start, Bach's B minor mass, Bach never heard a full performance of that. And to me, Bach's B minor mass is like one of the greatest achievements of mankind. It's like going to the moon or climbing Everest or something. It's an extraordinary thing. But for him only to have heard that within himself is just mind-boggling to me. Yeah, They had incredible brains. They were geniuses. Well, you're right. Just to remember it, to understand how the notes were relating to one another without being able to play it back for themselves. It is quite extraordinary. And to hear all those multiple notes, all of those voices happening at one time, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve different notes all happening at one time in your head, you know, that's that's not normal. I remember reading or hearing a story about Mozart when he was a child, I don't know, four years old, five years old, something like that. Father took him to see a string quartet, and there was a half an hour or so performance. He went back and he duplicated the entire string quartet from memory. Yeah, that that wouldn't surprise me. Wouldn't surprise me. And the the, the you hear examples of that with Mozart in, in in different settings. I I you know he wrote his first opera I think when he was eleven. Extraordinary, huh? You know that's beyond as they say over in this part of the world. That's beyond my ken. It's beyond my <laughs> understanding. How anybody, how anybody could do that. All right. Uh, we're in agreement on all of that. Let's go to the next song called Sometimes. Sometimes. 
Tell us about that. Sometimes is a straightforward kind of little melody that I found myself writing one day. And uh, I kind of liked the feel and the shape of it. And it had a nice melodic arc. And then in the early, oh, about 20 years ago, I was uh, contracted to Universal Records, UCJ, Universal Classics and Jazz, to make a solo Illin Pipe album. And I thought that sometimes lent itself very well to both whistle and to Illin Pipes to piano, because I wrote it on piano, actually, but also the orchestration of it. I loved the idea of having strings with that track. And when you were asking me to submit tracks, you know, for, for this podcast, Robert, I thought over various things and I thought, there's a track I haven't thought about for a long time. And I remember the pleasure that it brought me at the time of recording the album way back over 20 years ago. So I, I, I just enjoyed it, if that's not too vain a thing to say, Robert. Well, I enjoyed it as well. Tell everybody what Illin Pipes are, because not too many people are going to know the answer to that. Illin Pipes come, well, the word Illin is the word for an elbow in Irish, because Illin Pipes, unlike Scottish bagpipes, they're not mouth-blowing. Illin Pipes are bellows-driven. So you have a bellows that fits under your arm, and then there's a blowpipe from the bellows into a bag that goes under the other arm. And then you have the chanter, the bit in which the melody is played. You also have, like all bagpipes, you have drones. But you also have another odd ingredient in Illin Pipes called regulators. And those are optional stop keys that can give you harmony. And you play those keys with the heel of your hand as you're playing the chanter. As you're playing the melody in the chanter, you press these keys to give you chords. So it's a kind of complicated bagpipe. Peculiar absolutely to Ireland. I know of no other bagpipe that has regulators. But they also, they give an unmistakable colour of Ireland. When you hear Ireland pipes, you're here. You know, there's no nothing else like it uh, in the world for bringing you back, for bedding you completely into the middle of the, the history and the topography even of this island. As an Ilan Pipes uh, master, would you be able to play the bagpipes as well? Not at all. Very different beasts altogether. I wouldn't have the puff for bagpipes. The chanter work is different. The range of Ilan Pipes is kind of two octaves. Bagpipes is only, it's a shorter range, nine notes right. on, on Scottish bagpipe, but they're very different beasts altogether. Okay. Well, thank you for telling us in Ilan Pipes. Uh, let's do the last one now. This is a solo piano piece, I believe, called My Loggin' Love. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, yeah, My Loggin' Love. I collaborated with a, a beautiful a classical pianist last year called Ruth McGinley, a girl from Derry. And she's a wonderful classical pianist. And I've always wanted to make an arrangement of albums of traditional airs, but written in a classical style for a classical pianist. But I wanted the classical pianist also to have a deep understanding of the tradition from where these airs came. 
And during lockdown, when we were all twiddling our thumbs and so on, I wrote music every day. I actually found certain aspects of lockdown most agreeable. And I wrote most of the album for, for, for Ruth during this period. And My Lag and Love is a beautiful air. It's associated with the River Lagan in Belfast, which is the main river here. But actually, part of my head tells me it has nothing to do with the Lagan in Belfast. The air was collected in Donegal, in West Donegal, in the early years of the 20th century. And then a poet put words to it around the same time. But the air was collected up in Donegal, and they, they have a saying in Donegal, when somebody crossed the Lagan in Donegal, there's a river Lagan in Donegal as well. It has two Gs in its spelling. Belfast has one G. But in Donegal, when they talked about crossing the Lagan, they meant going, if, uh, going away from home to work. Once you went east of that river, you could be going to Straban or Derry in the north or Scotland or America or England. And very often people who crossed the Lagan never saw their kith and kin again because they were gone. That was just the reality. There was no work to be had in Ireland, so they had to travel. So I think it's a very poignant air. And, and albeit now associated with Belfast, I think for me, I think it probably has notions of the uh, the, the lagging, crossing the lagging emigration. Very well said. It has been extraordinary to speak with you. We are talking here with Neil Martin, who is uh, just incredible as a musician, a composer. You've worked in so many different mediums, and uh, it's just been a remarkable experience to talk with you about your experience and all the different things that you've done. I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's been my absolute pleasure, uh, uh, Robert, chatting to you. And it's very nice to talk to a fellow musician, albeit from different genre. We have an immediacy of connection. I know that. That's true. We certainly do. We're going to listen now to that song that started off the uh, episode. It's my song called New York City Groove. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.
Check it out.